welcome back to Geek Channel 8. Is this episode 7? We're on 7 now, aren't we, Nat? I don't know. (laughs) We did a lot of nothing this week, and it was glorious. I didn't even watch much. The the only things I have watched this week, uh, Warrior Nun, which I can describe it to you, and then you don't have to watch it, right? Like, this girl comes back from the dead, fights demons. You've seen it. Like, there wasn't anything. I don't know. I didn't think it was. It wasn't bad. It was good. I watched the whole thing, right? But um, there was nothing surprising about it. Yeah. Hmm. I watched Bolt. What? Wait. Disney film Bolt. Yeah. It, um, it, I had never seen it before. And it was in that phase where they, where Disney was, was trying to do 3D animation before they just said, fuck it. We'll just let Pixar do all, all the 3D animation. Yeah. And, and so it's like Disney trying to do Pixar. Pixar was already under the Disney wing at that point. And it's just kind of like pointless because it's fine, but it's it's like finding Nemo with a dog instead of a fish, you know, <laughs> and it was OK. But, you know, that's that's kind of so we got someone new joining us on the podcast this week. We have Johanna. Hi, glad to be joining all of you. I am the film programmer at the Hopkins Center for the Arts at Dartmouth College, and I'm psyched to join this particular chat because I consider James Bond to be my introduction to cinema. It's uh, the earliest canon I remember accessing, and I watched all of them starting at the age of seven, and so it's it's been a lifelong journey and a lifelong love. So thanks for inviting me on. So I guess the cat's out of the bag then. We oh, are doing sure. James. <laughs> you're t- you're we are fine doing to James... let the cat out of the bag. Like, you're <laughs> far more qualified than we are to, actually. Uh... Pussy galore. Yes, the, the cat is out of the bag. Um, we are doing James Bond this week. You'd think because we did Red Sun last week, which starred Ursula Andress, that we would be talking about the first Bond film, Dr. No, with... Ursula Andress, the consummate Bond girl. But we are actually going to be talking about Casino Royale and not the 1967 Casino Royale starring Ursula Andress. We are actually going to be talking about the first filmed version of Casino Royale from 1952, the TV show Climax. But before we get into that, what was your first Bond film, Johanna? My dad started me with Dr. No, and then after that, we sort of skipped around. I remember the dragon powered by a diesel engine as being one of those, like, just lines and images that stuck with me as as a kid. And and then after that, I think we went straight to Diamonds Are Forever, which is a good campy bond for, for kids. So those, those are the first two I remember. Nat, how about you? I distinctly remember, and you guys are going to roast me here, I remember the lotus jumping into the water and (laughs) turning into a submarine. And I know that was like, what, 160 seconds of screen time at most, right? But I was a little kid. That was my first. Yeah, I believe that was the 1979 The Spy Who Loved Me, um, Roger Moore. Okay. 
the Lotus Esprit turning into a submarine. I think. If I'm wrong, I'm sure our listeners will write in and tell us. My first one, I still remember, I had to take my sister to 101 Dalmatians. And my parents were in the theater. At, this is in the multiplex, mind you, at the next theater over, theater over watching Moonraker. And Moonraker being an adult film actually lasted longer than 101 Dalmatians. So our movie ended and we're like, uh, our parents are in there. And so they let us into the theater and I saw the last... <laughs> I don't know, 10 minutes or whatever of Moonraker. And then we just stayed and watched the next show, you know? So, so Moonraker was uh, my first Bond film in the theater. I believe I, my first one on TV would have been also The Spy Who Loved Me, which was your first one, Nat. Yeah. Yeah. And it I probably did see it on television. My mother was very anti-violence. So any, any hint of conflict. Wait, wait, just last week you were telling us your mother took you to see the seven uh, samurai. Like... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 No, she was very for artistic violence, but you know, obviously, <laughs> obviously if it's in English, it's just regular violence, right? Clearly, <laughs> clearly if it's subtitled, that's artistic violence, right? Japanese violence. Okay. Yeah. My mom had the same attitude towards Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. It was, you know, that she she couldn't do violence either, but somehow none of that counted. Yeah, yeah. The second it's subtitled, boom, art. Okay, so let me jump into the show notes here because we got a lot to talk about. October 21st, 1954. In January, the first nuclear sub, the USS Nautilus, was launched. In February, close to $800 million in aid was sent to Vietnam, and Eisenhower warned against U.S. involvement in Vietnam. We know how that turned out. <laughs> in March, the U.S. did an H-bomb test in the Bikini Atoll, and it had lots of fallout, literal and figurative, and it resulted in the U.S. admitting that they had been doing uh, these tests since 1952. In April, Rock Around the Clock by Bill Haley and the Comets hit the top of the charts and kicked off the rock and roll craze. In May, France lost the Battle of Dien Bien Phu, I hope I'm saying that right, resulting in the partition of Vietnam. So we're talking major Cold War here. In June, Alan Turing died of apparent suicide. This was a big year for literature. In July, The Fellowship of the Ring was first published. Huh. In August, 26 men and 8 women were arrested. This is a really minor news story I found. 26 men and 8 women were arrested in Sydney, Australia, on a, in a police raid on a Baccarat school, which was basically a casino. And... In September, William Golding's Lord of the Flies was first published. So British literature, big this year. And then in October came our some background on the film. This was Ian Fleming's first Bond novel. It was written in 1952 in his home in Jamaica, which is known as Goldeneye. It was named after the Operation Goldeneye, which he was involved in. He was a spy during World War II. 
So uh, the James Bond novels are informed by Fleming's real-world experience. Casino Royale is called Casino Royale because it takes place in a casino set in the town, fictional town of Royale, which is in the Bond universe in northern France, and it appears in two of the stories, Casino Royale and Honor Majesty's Secret Service. The Columbia Broadcasting System had bought the rights for $1,000, and I did the math, and in today's dollars, that's about $10,000. Wow. Yeah, which was considered way too little. And it was tied up in rights hell forever because of this sale, as was one other Thunderball, which we'll probably talk about in a future podcast. But basically, uh, Columbia had the rights all the way up until 1999 when they traded the Casino Royale Bond rights for the Spider-Man rights. Good news for Bond fans because that led to Casino Royale finally being filmed in two th- or you know made into a movie in 2006, an official Bond film. Whereas uh, Spider-Man was tied up away from Marvel for another decade because of that. They adapted it into a teleplay as part of the, their anthology series Climax, which was really popular and ran from 1954 to 1958. This was the third episode of the series. The first episode was based on a Raymond Chandler novel, The Long Goodbye, and Raymond Chandler was a good friend of Ian Fleming's. It's so interesting you mentioned that he and Fleming were friends because I got a distinctly noir vibe out of uh, this version of Casino Royale, which I hadn't actually thought about Bond as a noir cousin or even the spy genre as a noir cousin. But it sort of makes sense because both genres were kind of invented by Fritz Lang, who has sort of another Ur Bond film, um, Spies from 1928, which explored a lot of a lot of the tropes that show up in this film, like the the femme fatale who's actually working for the villain but is in love with the hero, and um, the the criminal mastermind who's behind everything and you know is you know, stroking a cat in some dark corner, but also has an, a number of disguises and alternate identities, and then also in Lang's Spies. You got a lot of cool gadgets. There's like disappearing ink, like all sorts of cool things. But since he also uh, was a pioneer in the noir area, it's kind of interesting thinking about those two, the spy genre and the noir genre side by side. Yeah. My favorite Fritz Lang film is M, which stars Peter Lorre. And Peter Lorre's in this. He plays Le Chief, the villain and agent of Smirsch. Smirsch being... The Russian spy organization. It was a real organization, I believe. Um, in more recent Bond films, they've replaced it with Spectre because it kind of doesn't make sense to have a Cold War uh, spy organizations. But Spectre also existed in the Bond universe. That was the other bad guy organization. Smirsch was the real-life forerunner of the KGB. Anyway, Le Chief who is played by Peter Lorre, basically was the first one, I believe, cast. And because of him, they were able to get some of the other cast to jump in on this. Anyone know who Le Chief is based on? I'll give you a hint. So you wouldn't, you wouldn't know this by, based on the performance, probably, but... Ian Fleming based him on a man who was considered the most evil man in the UK, according to the tabloids. 
the only name I have coming to my head right now is Aleister Crowley. That's the only person. You are correct, sir. He wow. was based on Aleister Crowley. Why would it be Aleister Crowley? Crowley. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Q Ozzy Osbourne. Yeah. Because they had Peter Lorre, they were able to get Barry Nelson as Bond. He was pretty popular at the time, and he was in Alfred Hitchcock Presents and The Twilight Zone. And then later on in his career, he started in films like Airport and The Shining. He was cast at the last minute, and he thought the script was a mess. He only did it so that he could work with Peter Lorre. They cast a Mexican act actress, Linda Christian, as Valerie Mathis. She was an agent of, and my French is terrible, so I'm going to try this, Duchamp Bureau, like number two, the second bureau. This is... Duziem. Yeah. This, could you say that again? Duziem. Duziem is the CIA of France. Linda Christian was born Blanca Rose Welter, and she dated Errol Flynn, who gave her her stage name, after he had played Fletcher Christian in one of the early versions of Mutiny on the Bounty. Prior to this, her last big role was Mara in the last Johnny Weissmuller Tarzan film, Tarzan and the Mermaids. <laughs> so tying it back to our series on Tarzan, we are now moving into a series on Bond. And I thought it'd be interesting to do because around mid-century, we have this shift from the ideal male being the strong, you know, square-jawed, you know, um, sort of, uh, you know, jungle action hero that, that Tarzan is, you know, the Olympic swimmer, to the refined British gentleman, which was actually the villain prior to that in, in the Tarzan films. Now we have the refined British secret agent who drinks cocktails and stuff like that. It, that's the Paragon ideal of maleness. Um, I have never been able to figure out how or why this shift happened, but it did. And it's not, it goes way beyond Tarzan and James Bond. They represent opposite ends of a spectrum that really flips somewhere around the 1950s. Well, and then later in the 60s, you end up with those same exact British actors just playing the Germans interchangeably. <laughs> well, through, well, through Star Wars, well, through, you just put a British gentleman in a Nazi uniform and you just know subconsciously that's a German guy. I guess the Nazi uniform helps, right? But but no, like we grew up hearing. Yeah. Jeremy Irons voice. Jeremy Irons sounds like a Nazi. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. Has he ever played one? I'm guessing yes. Um I don't want to Google it right now, but yeah, no, I I feel yes. It's believed that this may have been the pilot for a James Bond TV series. TV was live, so drama was like a play being broadcast. Once it aired, that was it. There was no reruns, not like today. And this was originally in color, and it would have been lost if it weren't for the kinescope process. Uh, that's where they literally take a movie camera and point it at a TV screen and film the TV show and archive it. And so someone did that, and there was a black and white 16 millimeter print made of this that was discovered in 1981. 
So after both of our first Bond films, this Bond film was discovered. Since then, other episodes of, of Climax have been found, and you can find them on YouTube. It centers around Baccarat, which wasn't very well known in the U.S. at the time. So the they tacked on a narrator explaining the game at the start. And the <laughs> they since it was for an American audience, they flipped the nationalities. So James Bond becomes Jimmy Bond, an American, you know, and Felix Leiter, who's normally in the Bond mythos, the American CIA agent, becomes the British agent Clarence Leiter. And then two characters were merged to be Valerie Mathis, basically Vesper Lynn and Renee Mathis. It was weird watching this from a modern context, right? Because we have spent the last 20 years steeped in competition card games. In 2020 world, I can turn on five different channels of Texas Hold'em championships. And this was, to me, about one-third Baccarat tutorial exposition. There was a lot of <laughs> walking you through the game. And let me let me step back just a little bit. This was a one-hour show, right? This was a 60-minute for American television production. The frameworks I think they would have had in the film, and they made the film a few years later, right? The frameworks they had, that time constraint they had, they ended up kind of focusing on bringing the Americans along for the trip, maybe a little heavily in my opinion. Um, this was... I can't get past American James Bond. Like, it was just so weird for me. It was so... It was just Jimmy Bond. Jimmy Bond was not any of the James Bonds ever. He was Jimmy Bond, little Jimmy Bond from down the street, right? Like, and he comes on, say what you will about any of the Bonds you could have chosen. And no knock to Barry Nelson. Again, this is the prototype for everything that's supposed to come later, right? Every single Bond I can think of has gravitas the second they start speaking. Barry Nelson was just kind of, Hey guys, you know, like, what's up? What's going on? <laughs> um, it was weird. And I, again, I guess cognitively I can say, sure, this was, this had just been written a year before. I'm sure it was already a very popular novel by that time. How do we turn this into a video format thing? I felt really weirded out by this. It kind of fell flat in my opinion, like, story-wise. I I agree with Nat about, you know, when you first meet him, I, I did a double take and was like, wait, am I sure that Clarence isn't James Bond? I really I really wanted him to, to be, you know, Timothy Dalton, like, in my head of like, that, okay, this this matches a Bond that, that I can think of. But what I thought was interesting is that the moments in the beginning when I started to sort of accept the character were at any moments where he was doing something through brute force or, you know, any physical thing. So when he, you know, is looking around trying to find the microphone in the room, there were moments like that when I believed, you know, oh, hello, cat, that um, he could be this you know, strong, impressive spy who people would fear and respect in those moments where he was 
physically active or in some of the early scenes with Valerie that I believed they had a past. I believed that it was complicated. There were aspects of that that worked, even though I agree with you, Nat, there was a lot that wasn't working or where I didn't feel like Jimmy Bond had even a 16th of the gravitas that Peter Lorre had as the villain. And so it, I found it very difficult in the beginning to imagine how this was even going to be a matchup, like let, let alone like knowing intellectually from the beginning, like Bond is going to get away with this, but just to really being skeptical about how is that going to work? <laughs> and, and most of what we're fighting is like everything we've learned about Bond in the years after that, right? Like it's all—it's so unfair to go into this knowing the next fifty years of Bond. But yeah, yeah, I—you did touch on um, Lon Chaney was really amazingly powerful. Like he can just Peter Laurie, Peter, sorry, <laughs> Peter Laurie could show up anywhere and turn something into magic he did it was great i loved him but yeah but jimmy bond jimmy bond never would have become a thing right like that that never would have happened culturally i don't think yeah it's possible that this was a pilot for a tv series and i can't even imagine this lasting for a whole season of this you know Unless it became a Western, which in in the first 10 or 15 minutes watching it, I was trying to decide what genre is this? Because it's not a spy thriller. It's some other genre. And so, like, you know, I ended up settling thinking, as I said, that it, it feels like a noir. But there was a moment where I thought, OK, it's a card game. There's this guy named Jimmy Bond who's, <laughs> you know, like got, like got a little bit of swagger, but, you know, isn't very bright. And so I thought maybe maybe this is a Western Bond. And what would what would that be like? They didn't have a lot to base spy film, you know, films off of that weren't noirs. There were mm -hmm. certainly spy films in the in the 40s and 30s Hitchcock films, but they were all very film noir. And so I think that that plus Western was their frame of reference. I will say that they did have one of my favorite Bond one liners, at least in you know, I thought this was really great. Barry Nelson, I don't know if he came up with this or not, but they say, aren't you the fellow that was shot? <laughs> and his response was, no, I'm the fellow that who was missed. <laughs> well, yeah, that was a great line. They also at the very the first note I wrote down was the first scene is he is walking into the casino. There's the shadow of a gun, there are gunshots, everybody gets down. Seconds later, he has emotionally come to peace with this, right? Like, mm -hmm. he's already okay with it. He's, ah, oh, well, why ruin a good night, of, you know, over a little assassination <laughs> attempt? He just goes about his business. That's an American move. Well, Although, that's very Bond. That's very Bond as well. In my opinion, it had like a heavier theatrical, like a, like a, theater structure than television I think I've ever seen has. Uh, but that makes sense now that, again, with what you had said earlier about this being filmed live and only kind of luckily captured on kinescope. Um, yeah, I guess I could see that. But yeah, it felt very... 
very playish to me. I, I don't know how else to put that. I agree. The The only area where I felt like, oh, this is something that works really well in cinema that you would have to work a lot harder to recreate on the stage is the moment um, when Valerie disappears and everyone is looking for her and trying to figure out, like, where did she go? Oh, I thought you had eyes on her. Oh, no, she's not here. And that that cinematically, considering that it was filmed live, felt like, you know, that that worked really well and, and didn't feel quite as theatrical. But I agree with you, like a lot of the um, parlor scenes or, or whatever you want to call them, where it's just like two people in a room, you know, it could have it could have been a stage play and worked more or less the same. Yeah. And it was a stage play in that they needed to know all of their lines and get it all in one take per act right? Because it was live. It was live TV. Okay, let's talk about some of the other Bond tropes. I wanted to mention, because this is so important to Casino Royale, the drink. In this one, he orders a scotch. Now, a lot of fans, but casual Bond fans, think that all that Bond ever drinks is a dry martini shaken, not stirred. That's his go-to drink, but not always. In the books and even in the movies, he often orders other drinks, scotch being a very common one. I believe he ordered that in, um, I don't know, Diamonds Are Forever or one of the others. And in this story, Bond invents the cocktail known as the Vesper and names it after Vesper. Now, Vesper was Valerie in this. So they left that whole part out. The Vesper is not the dry martini. It's similar, but it's it's made with gin and vodka and bitters. Some I'm, I don't know the exact recipe. I'm not a mixologist here, but the um, then he never orders it again for the rest of the Bond canon, and some people think that maybe that that's because Vesper dies, and Vesper is one of the few women that Bond actually falls in love with. The other, the only other one I can think of is Tracy, who he marries, Tracy Bond, who becomes Tracy Bond. Thoughts? I was paying attention to that and sort of, how is this one female character being represented in, in this film, and does she fit the Bond girl stereotype or not. And I guess because I was in a noir frame of mind, her femme fatalness really came through and she didn't seem to be more than that. And so it got me actually thinking about, uh, of course, most of the Bond girls are femme fatales, but they usually have something else going on. Like that in addition to, you know, getting Bond into trouble and being a bit of a honeypot, they also are their motivations are more complicated and i feel like since we didn't find out that she was working for the french until the very end of the film i don't feel like we got as much of that piece of of her you know complicated divided loyalties as sometimes we do with the other bonds i mean and especially vesper from the 2006 casino royale who is a very complicated but like can't quite figure out what she wants or or who she's working for or you know what is her end goal in in that film and it felt like 
this Bond woman was complicated, but we didn't really find out until the end when it almost didn't matter anymore. Okay. Uh, the other Bond trope, we've talked about women, we've talked about drinks, gadgets. It, it becomes more of a Bond thing. The only notable one in this film was the cane gun, which they were cane guns were a real thing. Yeah, but that wasn't his. That was the other guy's. Well, J- Jimmy Bond just has a screwdriver. That's all Jimmy Bond needs. <laughs> okay. All right. Sorry. Jimmy MacGyver Bond. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can think of no significant gadgety like. And again, that was having never read the books. That was a film invention, correct? And that was a film invention that developed. Like, that didn't just happen. That was films into the series where they started doing that. I believe you are correct. I have not read all of the books. Um, But I've read a little of Casino Royale, and I do think that Bond is much better on the screen than on the page. Well, and I I haven't read much of the books either um but i wonder whether some of it is that there's a lot of whimsy in the bond universe just just thinking about ian fleming's other most famous creation chitty chitty bang bang um (laughs) that that like a lot of the a lot of the tropes that come out of the bond universe are sort of in this more um silly playful area which this particular bond adaptation is really missing and some of it might just be you know that casino royale like the center of it is like drama around a card game that there aren't as many opportunities for for gadgets or whimsy or you know like you know perfect puns and witty one-liners like that there it's it's more intense and the 2006 adaptation is also more intense and focused on the card game. Can 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 I make a can I make an admission on that point? The first James Bond film I love was the 2006 Casino Royale. That was the first time I sat in awe of James. It I had grown up with it as a trope, right? It was there, everybody knew about it, everybody knew a lot of stuff about it. You saw it when the new film came out. But it wasn't until Daniel Craig that I absolutely loved a James Bond film. Originally, the the books don't have much whimsy to them, um, and the Connery's Bond was definitely pretty much a straight rendition. It was really Roger Moore who, when he came in, he said he consciously had to find a different take on the character. And so Roger Moore is when you finally start to get a lot of the whimsy and one-liners and things like that. Yes, I'm skipping over George Lazenby, but... Oh, no, no, that's not it. I'm just thinking about Goldfinger. Just just Goldfinger, if you think about Oddjob with the hat and that one of the characters' name is Pussy Galore. I mean, like, there's... It's Doctor No is is a more serious film. I'll definitely give you that. But the whimsy creeps in really quickly after that. Okay. All right, you, you got me there. So a lot of the gadgets, you know, Q issues those. He is called Q because it's short for what? Queer. I mean that. No, no. I mean that totally seriously. Like if you look at um, Judith Butler does a great unpacking of James Bond where she posits this exact thing 
where she says he is, you know, deliberately set up as this queer character. And I don't mean, I don't mean in a derogatory way. I mean, like, actually just kind of in this, like, middle space, can't, can't pin down, okay. you know, no. anyway. No. Q, Q is short for quartermaster. So well, that makes a lot more sense. The person that issues the equipment <laughs> in, in the British Army or Navy, as the case may be. Uh, Desmond Llewellyn is the name you were looking for. I believe he knew Ian Fleming, and he was an actual James Bond purist. Ironic that he's the guy that gives out the gadgets and all the silly stuff. But I remember in an interview, he once said that the true Bond aficionados of Fleming's Bond would consider Timothy Dalton to be the most like Fleming's Bond. One of the things I appreciated watching this film was how unique the Bond genre is and seeing it done in this other way, you know, Americanized, it it made me rethink, well, what what is it about Bond films and the spy genre that makes it different from noir or that makes it different from from a western or from from an adventure and I, I'm looking forward to looking at at the bonds that I consider pure bonds or like classic bonds, and trying trying to rethink what what sets them apart from these other genres. That maybe this this film is a transition film from from the past into what we consider classic Bond. I am really glad they didn't stop development at Jimmy Bond. I'm glad this is not where the character ended, right? Like, clearly it was a prototype for much better things. I've seen what the Americans did to Doctor Who. I'm glad they didn't do that to James Bond as well. Um, I'm glad there was a British take on it. It was a much better British character. The uh, the ill-fated one episode of of the American Doctor Who? With the motorcycle chase and the, yeah, 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 that one. You, you're, you laugh now, but I... I would be shocked if the decade, if we make it through the 2020s without there being another American take on Doctor Who. Next week, we are going to be doing the second filmed version of Casino Royale, the 1967 Casino Royale. So uh, look forward to, to that. It takes place as after Bond is in retirement. We are following the Fleming order, sort of, here. Um, but uh, uh, many people don't even consider it a Bond film, so we will see. We will be talking about the 1967 Casino Royale, and now we get to tie back to Ursula Andress. Before we go, I wanted to let everybody know, like and subscribe. Give us five stars in the iTunes store. Rate and review us there. That would really help. If you want to send us an email, tell us your fan theories, or if you just want to tell us that we're fucked, you can send we'll an email. We'll read hate mail. We, we are not proud people. We will read the hell out of anything you send. We will. As, as evidenced by sitting through this movie, we will sit through anything. We will read your hate mail. So send it to gc8podcast at gmail.com that's letter g letter c number eight podcast all one word gc8 podcast at gmail.com and what's uh, what what's up with you nat what are you doing between now and next time besides watching casino royale 67 
Uh, I'm, I'm doing the totally uncool thing of looking for a house and probably watching Norseman. That's, that's my, like, yeah, my go-to put it on, need something going video right now. Okay. Uh, you want to plug, uh, Evil Island or whatever? The, by all means, if you guys go to evilisland.net, you can look up our archives. We've got some of the stuff. We've got a little bit of stuff from Frontier Musicology Radio Hour there as well. Uh, but that is owned by one of the Oregon Public Radio Networks, so we've only got a smidge. But uh, yeah, evilisland.net. Awesome. I am about to launch our film program on eventive we're starting with women's adventure film tour so if you go to the hopkins center you can uh see what we're doing to work for the enemy there's there's nothing that makes me more sad than shifting my repertory classic cinema and you know new art house films from the theater into the small screen world but uh women's adventure tour it, it doesn't feel like quite a crime you can't see it anywhere else so might as well take a night to watch it with us but otherwise uh trying to get to the drive-in as often as possible to keep my love of cinema alive so actually if i'm going to plug anything it's go find your drive-in and see something on the big screen definitely we will be talking more about drive-ins in a future episode too i've got something planned for that so until next time this is eric this is nat and this is johanna signing off like, it was just so weird for me. It was so, it was just, 